Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Hello and welcome to episode 90, yes, nine zero of Life Beyond the Numbers. And this week we're going to have a look back on some of the life that has been on Life Beyond the Numbers. One of my favourite quotes, which is at least attributed to Maya Angelou, is People will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And with that in mind, I went back looking at the episodes that have gone out during 2022 and picked out some snippets that I suppose easily came to mind and things that just jumped out and evoked different feelings for me. So I kick off this episode with. Very small story from Dr. Suzanne Evans about the impact of change. And this is one of those stories that I just cannot get out of my head. It seems to be there all the time. And it's a really good illustration of how we can take some time to listen. And then Travis in episode 78 talked about cognitive entrenchment. Again, it it has entrenched itself in my brain. And I loved the story that Greta told in episode 80 about the realization of what working life might be like if she decided to go a certain way. And I suppose her foresight and bravery at a young age. I found that really, really inspiring, actually. And then I think about Emma's story and her career corner and how now everything is limitless for her. And it was one of those uplifting conversations that that stays with me as well and how Emma has taken I suppose her adversity or triumph over adversity and now uses that to help others. And helping others is a huge theme from most of the guests on the podcast. And I guess that's what we do as people. We help others. But one episode that really, I suppose, struck a chord during the interview was with Mason in episode 81 and how he lost his job just before the pandemic and 
how he got back on track and now how he helps others. Mason has a podcast called The Marketing Ladder. And the ladder reminded me of the conversation with Paul on a lifeline. And I remember being really moved during this episode when Paul talked about how it was his role now to send the ladder down to others and how he uses his experience to mentor others that are going through heart health issues, exam stress, or looking for work. And then I thought about a couple of unusual stories or conversations. And one of the stories that really sticks out is the conversation I had with Nat Hunter in episode 82 about what life might be like if we could only buy three items of clothing each year. Nat also talked about designing for insects and net zero. And then finally, and I suppose it's one of the things that life beyond the numbers is about, is looking at the person, the life behind the number. And whether that's the payroll number, the amount of money that person generates in an organization each year, or the amount of money they save an organization each year, or their age, or how many years of service. There are so many numbers. And listening to people's backstories and how they've gotten to where they are today is a particular fascination of mine. And one of the most unusual backstories I think anyone has told me, certainly in 2022 so far, is Philip in episode 73. And Philip talks about diving for diamonds off the coast of Africa. So I hope you enjoy these snippets I put together for you. Like I say, they evoked certain feelings and emotions and you can hear it. That's what's wonderful. You can hear it in my voice as I talk to each of these people and listen to their stories. And I've no doubt that these stories and indeed the stories that all guests share evoke different memories, emotions and feelings for you. And I always love to hear them. So please feel free to send me your thoughts. What were your favourite snippets? What were your favourite guests? Who would you like to hear more from? Always reach out and you can contact me directly over email, susan at beyond-the-numbers.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. So please feel free to share your preferred memory with me. Until next week, thank you for listening. There was all sorts of weird stories that popped up that were actually having an impact on the change. So one of them is funny, but it's actually quite sad when you think about it. So this organisation I was working with were it's an old organisation, very little change. They were having to make redundancies for the first time because they were closing some offices. And this was a big deal. And they took it really slowly because they realised that they could only move as fast as people in the organisation could move, which is a, is a great thing to do. But 
there was no thought given to some of the small things that happened that actually were affecting how people were feeling. So in this one particular office, they had Christmas. They had all the Christmas decoration. They knew that they wouldn't be in the office by the next Christmas because it would have shut. So they gathered up all the Christmas decorations, put them in a box, stuffed them under the stairs in the office. And someone said, oh, I'll take those to the local hospital and they can use those to decorate the hospital, which is a lovely thing. But then that person left. And so the, the Christmas decorations didn't move. And then a story started circulating that, oh, well, the office isn't closing because the Christmas decorations are still under the stairs. And if the office was closing, they would have been taken away. So at about six months time, when the senior managers came on site to talk about redundancies and to give people their notice and all that sort of thing, all hell broke loose because this story had been doing the rounds that it wasn't going to close because of these Christmas decorations. And it's a tiny, tiny thing that nobody would have thought of. But the symbolism of that, people who were going through uncertainty and stress were attaching to these things and no one had even considered that people would think that that was real but it became real because everyone talked about it that's it isn't it perception is reality and we often forget that we yes you know we think it's facts and evidence and whatever but actually as humans we hang on to something or we cling to something to give it meaning and there we made meaning out of something so simple no, and you know, I'm not saying I would have done a better job because I'm not sure I would, because I don't think I would have even considered that people would be creating meaning from that. But it just goes to show that if leaders take some time to listen to the stories that are being told and to talk to people about what they're thinking and what they're feeling, then that might have been uncovered and a lot of upset could have been avoided as it goes. No one had bothered to listen to any of that stuff. And so it came as a big surprise to everybody. And a couple of years ago, I was listening to Adam Grant's podcast and, and he had a guest on and they were talking about cognitive entrenchment. And that stuck with me because that is a big hurdle for people because they get entrenched and, and they build their own box and they can't see other things. And that's why I say take a side gig, like step out and do something so you can break that cognitive entrenchment and, and see other things because yeah you just think you know everything and this is how it is this is how it's always done it's worked and you don't know any other possibilities so that stuck with me a lot when i heard that i'm like oh my god i've seen this so many times and it's hard to talk to people and that was my biggest problem when i was doing these marketing side gigs and coming back with these ideas i'm like why don't we do this it was so hard because they had no idea they they had no idea what it was why it would work why we should do it it was so different than anything that had been done before and it was frustrating for me and that's what finally forced me out i'd worked so hard to get into microsoft and finally i'm just like i cannot break through it's just numbers and i don't want to do this anymore i want to do other things and i felt like i had so much to offer and i just can't offer it because it's a big company and i'm in a box right and so i quit and said i'm just gonna do my marketing thing full my side gig turn it into a full-time thing and just take the leap and do it and so i did so what was that like, taking that leap? Oh, it felt so great, man. Scary, but it felt great. And it felt like freedom. And it felt like, man, I'm free of that. And I can finally make an impact. I can finally do what I enjoy. And I think the only reason why I was able to go into a creative career, well, not the only reason, but I studied psychology and went into journalism about sort of six months after graduating. 
But I think it was my naivety, I think, because I didn't understand that I was supposed to put on a false self at work. I didn't really click with that at the time. And in the space between graduating and then getting my first job, I was going for all these interviews. I was I signed up with an agency and she'd sent me to loads of different interviews for different jobs. And there was one in an investment bank. I was supposed to be interviewing for some kind of assistant that would lead to a banking role. We had this interview and it went fine. And we were talking and I thought, oh, this is fine. Um, and then he looked at me really directly and said, this is what your life is going to be like when you're here. You're going to be working till like nine, 10 at night, every night. You're going to be really in a very intense, very highly pressured environment, but it's okay. We have a pharmacist on site. We have all of these amenities. We have a place where you can get food. So, so it's absolutely fine. And he painted this vivid imagery for me of what my life was now going to be like if I got this job. And he said, oh, so what do you think then? And then I was like, that, that just sounds awful. I, that's not somewhere I want to work. And I remember he was horrified and sort of shocked and sort of and curious at the same time. And he didn't know what to say, actually. And he just sort of, you know, the interview closed. And the agency that had got me this interview, she was fuming. She was absolutely furious and said, never, ever let yourself go like that again. Never, ever do that again. Agree to everything they say and say you're perfectly happy with everything. And it was a massive learning because I thought, why do I have to fake it? Why do I have to pretend I'm okay? And I think that point comes to many of us at some point. It came to me really early. I mean, I was like 21. It came super early that I'm not going to fake it at work. But we all reach that point where we're, we're so fed up of not being ourselves that we just can't take it anymore. And I think people burn out and they have a major imposter syndrome sort of attack or something. It makes them break down that false barrier that they were forced to put in place in order to survive, to make money, earn some kind of a living. Career and work, what we do every day, what we spend our time doing every day is so critical to that piece and so yes it's not in a vacuum there are other things that go into and make up your well-being but for so many of us we want to contribute we want to be useful we want to do something that matters with our life we want to get to our deathbed and feel fulfilled people don't really fear death they fear living a life not not fulfilled and so very often, I think people are wrestling with keeping things the same, not making trouble in their own life or disrupting perhaps within their family or whatever the constraints they're putting on themselves. And this calling or yearning that's within them to do something that matters, to make a difference with their life and the fear, I'm going to get to the end of my life and have regrets that I didn't do the things that I wanted. And this is really quite painful situation for people to be in. It certainly resonates with what I was talking about with my own experience of depression. I was in a career corner I thought I'd painted myself into and I didn't know how to get out. And I was having those thoughts at, in my early 30s and, you know, oh, that's it. <laughs> I've ruined my life. <laughs> when now I'm thinking I can continue to change and evolve and do so many different things with my life and my career it's limitless 
Wow. I like that the career corner painting yourself in. And I can see it's like as a small child, you had to stand in the corner when you were <laughs> bold or whatever. So there you are in the corner facing the wall thinking, this is it. This is my lot. But I guess the part of it that it might be hard to reconcile for people is the responsibilities they feel like a mortgage family I can remember I quit a job after five months because it was soul destroying and somebody saying to me oh it's fine for you you don't have a family you can do that you don't have the mortgage whatever and I remember thinking well I could stay there but like (laughs) if I had all of those things but I would be so miserable and everyone in my life would be miserable too so if you're struggling with this, for people that are in that corner now, Emma, or feel like the corner might be coming towards them, how do you start? Again, I'm back to like, what do you do? What's yeah. good to start with? My journey is one that I incorporate into the methodology that I work with my clients on. I think that that's true for so many of us we've learned steps that have helped us and therefore if we can expedite that journey for somebody else then that's good and something positive can come of that mess we we found ourselves in and somehow managed to clamber out of we've never actually spoken before and so when I was researching this episode, the thing that struck me most about you was your approach to helping. I mean, you have just an incredible generosity of spirit. And if we just take LinkedIn, it is so evident. I'm going to read out just to embarrass you a little bit. Which All right, well. I'm not going to embarrass you, but there's a few beautiful things people say. So first, I think you have I'm open to helping on your profile. I didn't even know that was an option. So it was really interesting to see that. But then people say you have a desire to learn and help your character and compassion towards other transcends every action you carry out. You are a true people person able to build genuine connections with others and serve them in valuable ways. And even when you look through your career, there's lots of volunteering and it's all about helping. So where does that come from? Specifically when it comes to helping and marketing, for starters, I'm sorry, I just, it's been a minute since I've actually read any of those. So it's an incredible reminder of the kindness of others to actually even say that about me. But when when I look at my, my career and trying to help others, and when COVID hit, I was laid off. And when I was laid off the month prior, I had gotten engaged and I had bought a house. Wow. Um, We were married very young and my wife was still in college. So uh, engaged with me being the only way to support a future family was, was pretty rough. There was about four months where I applied to over a thousand jobs, went to upwards of 150, maybe 200 interviews, had people telling me they wanted to hire me, but that they couldn't because they were on a hiring freeze. There was a very distinct moment where I got the layoff email the day after my wife's birthday. And then she drove or fiance's birthday at the time and she drove off and I didn't know the next time I would see her. And there's a weight that I still feel very strongly on my chest of what that experience was like. So 
knowing that and recognizing where I was in my career, being as young as I was, I really didn't have any connections. I didn't have anyone that as much as people wanted to help, there wasn't any any resource that I found that was like, Hey, here are the individuals that will go above and beyond to help you get connected. So when I got to a point in my career where I started to interface with really, I mean, high level individuals, these CMOs, I recognized, okay, these people actually are all very kind. Like they have a genuine heart and desire, but they're all super busy because they're like running companies. So how can we create something that is designed to enable them to still help others that are younger in their career that maybe want to transition into marketing? Like how can we provide an opportunity for them to still offer that help and say, hey, if you are looking for someone that can help you get connected, like I'm happy to be that connection for you and identify those people and then provide them a platform to make that known. And that's where really the concept of the marketing ladder, which is my own podcast came from. And it's a passing project. It's not a business, like there's no revenue off of it. So I don't really have the money to spend on advertising. So how else do I get the word out, but through LinkedIn. So my, my personal platform and profile and all of it has been now geared towards helping others build their career and make them aware of all these wonderful people that want to help them. And I think the other thing that's been beneficial is I happen to also be a marketer myself. Like I am in my career as well. So everything that I throw out is coming from a place of I'm in it with you versus I've been there. I'm actively learning how to also grow my career. Back in my day, it was like, this is right now. How am I growing? So anyway, that's kind of where all that wrapped up. And I think that's how it is now taking shape today in my career of how I'm trying to help others. Paul, you're in good health now. That's 2018, four years ago or so on. The pacemaker is doing its job. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's a miracle of of modern science. It's like flicking a switch. And now I'm back to as good a health as I had before this sudden series of unfortunate events. Well, that's really good to know. And that's had to have an impact personally and professionally on your life. I think it's, you have a different perspective, or I've gathered a different perspective about coping with adversity or bouncing back from adversity from a health point of view. And what I try and do is share that experience with other people to help other people. You know, for example, I talked about about mentoring before and and trying to help younger members early careers and and have them benefit from my experience and I think about exams and uh, you know I remember taking my SEMA exams and when I took the exams it was like four, four stages four papers 16 papers and I I passed my exams but I failed four along the way and bounced back from that and so I try and talk to people about exams and about preparing for success but don't be afraid of failure. It's only failure if you stop. A couple of years ago when I was in between roles and I was part of a fabulous, um, what we call a hashtag open to work community of people helping each other. And uh, there were lots of people who, when I joined that community, would use their experience to help me. And in turn... I try to then pay it forward to others in that community and still do because my experience, if it's not shared, is just hindsight. 
It's just, what would I have done? What would I have done differently? And I think from a health point of view, it's the same. I'm part of a couple of online pacemaker stroke heart health communities. And, you know, asked me about my sort of journey from being unwell to being, you know, as in as good as health as I've been for forever, really. But there's a lot of people who are just starting out in that same storm that I was in, in 2018. And they're, first of all, they're afraid because they don't know what's wrong. And then there's like a cycle, in, in my experience, a cycle where you go from being afraid to, you know that something's wrong and then you really are down, you're, you're, you're down, you know, and then you bounce back from that once you realise that you're on the road to, to recovery and that there's every reason to be hopeful. So I, I'm a cyclist, okay? Not a, not a I was going to say not a proper cyclist. <laughs> but, More proper than me, you have a bike. <laughs> I go on my bike probably once a week if I'm lucky. I know that makes me a cyclist. And, and I would try and tell others in the, uh, my pacemaker community who are thinking that life's never going to be the same again. And I would say, do you know what? Last week I went out and did 50 miles on my bike for the first time since being fitted with a pacemaker. And that's not to say that everybody in the community is going to be able to get on the bike and go and do 50 miles on a bike, but it, it's trying to send the message to others to say that, um, things will get back to normal or you can get back to normal. You know, a pacemaker is it's not a death sentence or even a life sentence. It's a lifeline. And my role is to send the ladder down for other people. And, and, and that gives me a lot of satisfaction, whether that's heart health, helping people who are going through the trauma of, of looking for work or people who've failed exams or, or are struggling with, with exams. I've been there and in all of these instances, I've managed to bounce back from adversity or from something failing. And uh, yeah, I hope that that will help somebody else. So in terms of systems again, um, there are loads of things being designed all the time, aren't there? Advertising is the biggest industry in the world. Whoa. That's insane, isn't it? It makes us want stuff. Some of the statistics that are coming out now about how we need to change our behaviour as consumers say things like, we need to be thinking about buying three items of clothing a year. I can see your face. <laughs> yeah. So there's some radical change that needs to happen. So it's not... We about... add shoes onto that or is... Is that included? No, no, it's all included, even underwear. If you just have a thought experiment with that, then what would you be doing? You'd be buying three incredibly well-made, non-fashionable, well, classic items. You'd be really thinking about how you wash them, how you repair them, and how the whole ecosystem around those pieces of clothing would be very different. You wouldn't be buying it from ASOS or Amazon and getting it you'd be trying it on making sure it was absolutely right that it was really comfortable you'd be really caring for it maybe you'd be choosing it made from really 
well-sourced materials by well-looked-after people as well. You can make those kind of decisions if your entire year's clothing budget goes into three items of clothing. So I think it's more to do with changing our perspective on things in terms of what we need and how we do things. So I teach product design students quite a lot and MA students are really engaged with things like how do we design for insects? How do we co-design with insects? How do we have conversations with insects to know what they want? They're really engaged with getting out of this idea of everything being the next big shiny thing that someone wants to buy, which is definitely what would have happened 10 years ago. Wow. That's like... (laughs) It kind of blows my mind that people are sitting around talking about this stuff and it sounds amazing and it feels like I've been alive at the wrong time <laughs> where we've come to this crisis point almost in the planet. But the other thing I thought about, if you're only buying three items of clothing in a year, I think the other thing you're going to do is make sure that they fit you for a very long time, which means you look after your body better as well. Well, there you are. That's systemic. That would be a systemic approach. When you said that, I thought about like my grandfather's generation when they would all have tailored suits. Well, if you were of a certain, you know, kind of person, you'd have a tailored suit. And tailored suits were designed to change with you over your entire lifetime. So the seams go out and in. So the tailored suits have a lot of give in them. So they would know that you're likely to put on a bit of weight in your middle age and there would be some give in the suits that you could take it back to their tailor and have them altered. Wow. Well, there's no point talking about where it all went wrong because we kind of have an idea and we know and we've, we've lived through it. So is this happening all around the world, Nat? Yeah, very, very much so. I'm really astounded at the pace of change of the level of conversation. I know it's happening in the States. I know it's happening in Europe. I know it's happening in Australia. One of the big things is people waking up to the realization that we have got it wrong and the realization that indigenous cultures worldwide had it right all along, but our culture squashed them. The UK has committed to being net zero by 2050. So the government asked the Design Council to research how design is being used at the moment to get us to a low carbon economy or how it could be used. It was brilliant because it was in the middle of lockdown. And from my spare room, I was talking to people in Malaysia and all over the world who who were working on big systemic projects. And I was asking them how it happened. How does a big systemic project happen? And that could be a housing estate, it could be a dam to stop flooding, all sorts of different kinds of things. It could be a campaign to to make a whole town wake up to the idea of becoming more carbon neutral. And what we realised in the process, actually, I mean, it was such a brilliant, brilliant process. We realised that net zero, which is the national target, just isn't enough because net zero is well it's kind of like what I've been saying the whole of this conversation it's so narrow-minded it's so myopic in a net zero economy you've got someone like Bill Gates who's got something like 17 private jets who's investing his wealth in sequestering carbon in Iceland and 
so it's really much more of that offset mentality of I don't have to change my life. I'm not buying three items of clothing a year. I, I need another plane every year, but I'm investing loads of my money in sequestering carbon. So it's this sense of offsetting. And actually it felt very cold. You used the word warmth earlier. It felt very cold. And, and actually when we were researching, we started finding out much more about this idea of regenerative design and systemic design and radical diversity and inclusion. And it just feels so much more human when you talk to people about net zero or you talk to people about regenerative design. I mean, the, the, the difference in body language and excitement is, is palpable. And actually, as part of that work, I was doing things like leading people on guided visualizations to imagine the 2050 that they want, inspired by a really great guy called Rob Hopkins, who founded the Transition Town movement. And what's really interesting when you do a guided visualization, most people are up for it, which isn't really normal in our culture, but people seem to be really up for it. And it's using a whole different bit of your intelligence. It's not using your left brain anymore. It's using your heart brain, your gut brain, your right brain. And every time I've done it, I've done it with all sorts of different kinds of people now. Every single time people say, wow, I've never been asked to imagine a positive future before. I've opened the paper and it's all about us going to hell in a handcart. It's all dystopian. So, wow, how refreshing to imagine a positive future. And of course, we live in this world, so you've got to deal with this world as well. But actually holding that thread to the positive future is so amazing. And the second part of that workshop that I run is, is taking one thing. So, that, so this is going back to what can people do? So if you really allow yourself to imagine a, a future that you really want, let's say you really want to walk down streets where people are smiling and there's a sense of community. Then if you pull the thread back from that future to now and whoever you are, whether you're a student, whether you run an organization, whether you're an employee, everyone has a sphere of influence. So if you can keep that thread alive and I write it on a post-it note, stick it next to your bed or whatever, and ask yourself every single day, what tiny little one degree move, what little turtle step could I take towards making the world better in terms of community? Even if that just means you go out and you smile at people looking like a lunatic or I you do get it involved every day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Or you decide to get involved in a community project. But we can all do things. So if we all took that little thread and did a tiny thing every day, then actually that makes a, a massive difference. Absolutely. It reminds me of what Margaret Mead said uh, about, you know, the world needs a group of people who are willing to make change because nothing else ever did it. I mean, I'm really paraphrasing and butchering it, but yeah, she said something like that. And the one thing actually I thought of when you were talking about how it was cold when we were talking about Bill Gates and actually that offsetting is very transactional. And that's where it makes it cold because it's back to the business. It's a transaction and in and out. Whereas actually what we're looking for is transformation. Exactly. And you can see it in the rise of mental health uh, crises and stuff, can't you? You know, that, that people aren't happy with the transactional nature. And God, well, you know, what happened with P&O ferries the other day? That's a really good example, isn't it? Of people who are just seeing employees as pawns in their, in their balance book. And no one ever thought about someone who worked for that company for 35 years and how they're going to support their family now and the way it was handled and everything. And 
you know, what's going to happen for the mental health of those people? What's going to happen in terms of their impacts now on social services, on, on the medical services, on everything, on crime? So that's what I mean by systemic design. It's like, actually, when you start, when you bring the humanity back in, when you bring the warmth back in, the impact is just so different from the balance sheet. It's what we all need as human beings. On your LinkedIn profile, Philip, you describe your work life as having two themes. And th mm -hmm. this really struck me. So tell me what those are. Tell the listeners what those themes are and how they became your themes. Well, so it's an interesting question. Uh, and you asked some great questions, if I may say. But uh, I, I think that what I found useful coming back to LinkedIn was, I guess we have to curate ourselves these days, don't we? Um, I mean, we kind of decide what we say, what we don't say, which is both a good and a bad thing. But it does give us a pause to think a little bit about what, what we really want to tell the world about what we do, what we stand for, and so on. And so my profile when I was writing this, and I've rewritten this so many times, as, as I'm sure we all have, was it was kind of looking for themes to tell my story. And I began to realize that actually, adventure and innovation are the two areas that I guess keep coming up in my life in different ways. And adventure is not uh, adventure with a capital A. It's kind of accidental, really. Um, I was born in Singapore, and the first four years of my life were, were spent there because my father was in the Royal Navy at the time, and he was posted there with my mom. We um, were there for four years, so my first formative years, of which I don't remember very much, but I'm sure my life is, is sort of colored by that. And, and then a kind of a meander, if, if I can describe this briefly, from Singapore back to the UK, where my father was reposted and then left the Royal Navy at the time at my mother's request. He set up a business and uh, my mother soon had enough of that and the, the life that required her to actually um, get involved in running that. And, and so soon they were looking for an opportunity in another Navy in, in South Africa. So in, in about 1975, we ended up going to uh, South Africa to Cape Town, Simonstown in particular, where my father was starting a new chapter of his life, really. And that kind of took us to a whole new world and a whole new culture, which I spent another 35 years in, which was amazing. What I haven't said is my mother is uh, French and my father is English. So already there was a strange sort of um, dynamic going on and, and growing up in, in South Africa was uh, in the middle of apartheid and, and through the dismantling of apartheid ultimately into 1994. But the memory living in a world where toilets were segregated on the station, you'd have you'd have toilets for African people, for white people. And this was normal, as normal as you might expect it to be. But so, so for me, already my adventures were interesting. I started university in, in Cape Town, I had a, a, an amazing time um, there and ended up joining De Beers Marine, which was a, uh, which was a, a very pioneering part of the De Beers Diamond. And I guess that took me through various twists and turns. But ultimately, I started my life as an engineer, but was involved in high precision underwater navigation. So lots of maths, lots of technical stuff. Um, some exciting pioneering times, really, because we were exploring the entire coast of West Africa and looking for diamonds that had been washed down by the Orange River. The Orange River was sampling those diamonds from the interior, from the Kimberley area. So these big pipes, if you like, diamond pipes, which you might know about. And it was washing those diamonds down into the sea. And, and the, the sea was reworking them in, on the ancient coastline. And so you would end up with these deposits. And our mission was really to, I 
go and find them, identify them, locate them, mine them profitably. And it was all sort of the, the, the time that I joined the Beers Marine was just out of university. In fact, not even quite out of university because I left after my father died just before I turned 21 and went into this working environment that was just fascinating. Uh, you had D Dutchmen, you had Englishmen, you had South Africans, you had people from everywhere and from all disciplines applying their minds to extracting diamonds from sediment, anything up to sort of five meters deep or under 100 meters of, of water. And so we were trying all kinds of things and we borrowed technologies from different countries and different industries, uh, oil and gas, for example. And so um, it was a fun time. It was a really wonderful time. And I, I, I was really privileged to work with some people who I, I retrospect respectively realized we were just wonderful leaders and super inspiring in their own way uh, and gave us freedom all of us to explore careers to explore things of interest and uh, yeah it was a very rich and, and, and deeply meaningful time in my life amazing i have never heard of most of what you've just said before <laughs> and that, the mining, it's a bit niche <laughs> yeah the mining of yeah. the the sea for diamonds that's that's quite in, does it still go on yes it does yeah and certainly at the time uh, and i'm going back now sort of 20 years really but uh, that was really as i said very pioneering but in fact we, we realized that the these were all kind of gem quality stones that we were mining at the time and uh, a good size, almost three quarters of a carat. I think what captures the, the time was, I remember a very large drill ship that was brought, brought across from oil and gas from the North Sea, converted into a, a drilling ship. So this drilling ship would literally have, a, if you imagine, a long bit, like a long drill bit with a flat plate at the end and a sort of a suction device, and you would literally be sucking sediment up and you would be processing all of this on board. And I remember one day, being invited down because I was the surveyor. This was my, my my metier, as it were. So I was, and and it was quite literally. It was just diamonds in the dark. It was the most surreal thing. If you can imagine, picture some sort of Quentin Tarantino film, and they're in a massive warehouse or a big hangar, and it's all dark, and you've got a wooden table that just is this rickety thing, sort of four feet by two feet, and there are six of us crowded around this table, some burly security folks, and the captain and myself. And we're doing a hand sort of these diamonds. And it's, it was just the most extraordinary thing. You know, for a young man, I was probably about 23 or 24 at the, at the time. And just looking at this tray of diamonds that looked really like broken glass, you know, a, a braided glass in a sense. They didn't look anything like the things we, we of course, see on, on cut jewellery. But, but it was just wonderful. And I, I guess it captures just how strange it was. Um, that we were all kind of just hanging around this, <laughs> this table talking about these diamonds that must have represented millions of uh, dollars worth of uh, product. But um, yeah, it was a strange old time. And I think it really ignited the second part of my passion. So the theme of innovation and constantly myself, I recognized quite early the, the desire to, to always think, how can we do this differently? How can we do this better? You know, how can we make this simpler and yeah so looking back <laughs> in that curated linkedin way probably the beginning of my my, my deep interest in, in business improvement and, and in innovation amazing isn't it before we started recording we were talking about how people's backstories inform who they are today and how they show up in the world and i would never have known any of this and how you got into what you do and 
it brings things to life in ways that you see people differently because you get like, wow, between the travel, the adventure. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.